from Beyond the Beltway. This is Chris Roebling sitting in for vacationing Bruce Dumont. This is our weekly analysis of national politics, and we're featuring our guests, Charles Lipson, retired chairman of the political science department at the University of Chicago, and Eitan Mikhaili, author of the newly published and very well-received 12 Tribes, Promise and Peril in the New Israel. Of course, this conversation weekly for many years now features occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Our program tonight is coming to you from our home base at 560 The Answer WIND Radio in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, and our phone lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. I welcome Eitan Mikaili and Charles Lipson. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for joining, and Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year. Uh, glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to be here, too. And I, I want to uh, add uh, for listeners that... Uh, Eitan and Chris and I all know each other, we all like each other, and it hasn't prevented us from disagreeing in, in I hope, uh, pleasant ways, but uh, without pulling punches. Pulling punches is not what this program True. is about. We learned that years ago from Bruce Tumont, who's taking a well-deserved evening off, and I don't want either of you to pull punches, but at the same time, I hope that tonight... You know, sort of 2nd of January, a little bit of a look back, a little bit of a look forward. I'd like a little more forward than back. I'd like us to talk about the possibility, the areas, maybe the potential ground for some kind of conciliation, if not reconciliation, just a little bit of conciliation might go a long way. And perhaps there's some sort of center out there. I just don't know. I'm not saying there is. But that's why we've got smart people like you two uh, to come in and, and talk about it. So let's, let's say that tonight I want to go through specific areas and I want to hear from you what you think possibilities are and what the salient issues are and then possible solution or your, your sense of is there any common ground out there, okay? That's what I'd, I'd like to do for us and um, invite the listeners to join in the conversation, submit topics. I'm not as friendly as Bruce. I don't leave listeners on as long. I like them to say what they came to say and then go away. And we got Fritz Goldman, our friend, in that's the what, control That's room. what I feel about you, Chris. <laughs> Fritz is in the control that's what room. That's I think about he, you. He knows how to trapdoor those guests very, very well. So start off, let's, let's talk about education. Let's, let's talk about K-12 education. Both of you are big advocates for education. Obviously, Charles, you've devoted your life to it. And Eitan, you're, you're out teaching people, uh, especially sort of graduate students in journalism all the time. And uh, you have greater prominence from your, your two very uh, successful books now. It, it, you know, we saw K-12 education become what may have been the deciding issue in Virginia. Uh, Charles, why did it become the deciding issue? And is are there problems that everybody can agree on? And therefore, are there solutions folks can agree on to those problems? 
I think that it's important to begin with two background elements to all political discussions. The first is that we've been in a lockdown or uh, constricted mode, in, in effect, under house arrest for so long, people are just grumpy. And I would say that our politics is it has been, uh, with the possible exception of the two uh, Obama elections, um, for several decades now, all about throwing the bums out. It's all been negative. Our politics has all been negative. Get rid of the guys who are already there. They've disappointed us. I think the second background issue is that we're in the midst of a technological industrial revolution, at least as important as the one that happened in the early 1800s and the one that formed Chicago uh, around 1900, right? The, that was a big, heavy industry revolution. It brought in people from Poland and everywhere else. And uh, a lot of the jokes that were made, for example, the uh, uh, ethnic jokes that were made about different groups were because those groups didn't need to be educated and the city didn't educate them because the jobs required lifting heavy things and so forth. Uh, it didn't require cognitive abilities. But the economy we're in now requires cognitive ability of a very high level. And I think that it's impossible to talk about education without talking about the failure of our institution, not just K-12, but a lot of the uh, colleges and universities in failing to educate students for this new environment. Of course, what happened in Virginia added to that because um, the, um, the teachers unions, which uh, led a lot of the shutdown of public schools, private schools remained open. Uh, those people uh, decided that they would, uh, that they were really ultimately responsible for kids' education and that parents should have almost no role in it. And it was a terrible misstep by the Democratic gubernatorial nominee, Terry McAuliffe, to endorse the teacher's position on that, which opened up uh, the road for Glenn Youngkin. And let's hear from Eitan here before the end of the segment. Sure. So the fir my first book, uh, which I'll pull a copy out here. Uh, well, I'll do that in a minute when I don't knock things over. It's in um, better airports everywhere, isn't it? It, it is. It is. Um, it's uh, it's called The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. And it's a history of the Chicago Defender newspaper. If you don't know what The Defender um, is and what it was, it was founded in 1905 in Chicago, um, uh, really at the, the, the cusp of that industrial revolution when newspaper technology, industrial newspaper technology suddenly became available to um, the common man and Robert Abbott, an, an African-American migrant, migrant from Georgia, who was um, trained at the Hampton Institute, then as now the finest, one of the finest um, African-American institutions of higher learning. He came to Chicago, took advantage of that technology, 
um, with very little resources. Uh, the legend is as little as a quarter. He was able to build the newspaper into the first national communications vehicle for African Americans and made it a political force unlike any other. The defender was responsible for the migration of African Americans that the, the became known as the Great Migration. It was a newspaper that, that helped foster the political migration of African Americans from the Republican Party um, uh, to the Democratic Party in the, in the 1920s, 30s, and, and 40s and beyond. It was a newspaper that, that played an essential role in the civil rights era and beyond. And it was a newspaper that uh, uh, kind of became a, a, a conservative voice or a moderate voice or was seen as such um, in the 70s, Eitan? 80s, and 90s as other kinds of, of voices uh, uh, became more we- uh, vocal in... in- Sitting in for Bruce Dumont, my name is Chris Roebling. Great to be with you here on the second day of 2022. Eitan Mikhaili was answering a question about education. We got into a little bit of the history of the Defender. And uh, Eitan, thank you. Um, we've all got to keep an eye on the clock here. But let us, uh, let's square that circle with how it all relates back to K-12 and whether or not this is an issue on which anybody can find common ground in today's environment. Well, so what I was saying was that the the book that I wrote the, um, on the history of the Chicago Defender, you, you could say is 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 one that is uh, 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 the kind of of alternative history of 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 the United States that a lot of people are are feeling are feeling challenged by these days. In my case, it was it it was a, a work of nonfiction. I'm not uh, 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 this wasn't something that was for K through 12 consumption necessarily. And it wasn't um, as far, it's not as far as I know being included in, in K through 12 curricula, but it is, it is being taught at the college level and at the, at the graduate school level. And, and I think it's important to, to do the kind of, of, uh, of, uh, of critical historical work that, that um, sometimes gotten a bad rap um, to do it at the graduate and the college level. I think a lot of parents got upset because they felt that um, uh, uh, that that uh, uh, that the kind of history that they were being taught was not appropriate for their kids. You can you can characterize it a lot of different ways, and I think a lot of of uh, um, uh, 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 political gain was made by characterizing it this way or that way. But the reality is that that um, uh, the kind of history that 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 um, uh, 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 history is, is a process of, of rediscovering old information and presenting it in new ways. The, the process of history is going to be contested and it's going to be difficult and it's going to, to frankly involve um, steps forward and steps back. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Yeah. When do you think it becomes ideology? When do I think it becomes ideology? Yeah, when do you think? That I think is what is the crux of a lot of the de- debate. A lot of co- uh, families, conservative families in particular, feel that their kids are being indoctrinated, that they're facing an ideological onslaught. Uh, they're perfectly w- uh, uh, willing, I think, or they should be willing, to have 
history uh, taught, taught warts and all. Uh, but at some point, uh, it becomes an ideology. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. Uh, I heard this week uh, from a very reputable source that one of the top private schools in Chicago is now, uh, uh, for its uh, interviews, with parents who want to send their children to school, demanding that the parents agree to the school's equity, inclusion, and diversity uh, agenda, which is an ideological uh, approach uh, that they have uh, to this. Um, That is, it's a departure from America's uh, traditional notion that everybody is treated should be treated equally and race shouldn't be taken into account and so forth. You can agree with that or not, but they are now making that a litmus test. For, for and I think that child. that's true in a lot of classes. I don't think you could be. I don't think you could major in a lot of uh, subjects in most schools and 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 disagree with the teachers. Now let me. That, that's one of the prestigious private schools in in the city that you mentioned, right? It's let a me, program, but let me yes, give you an example from my about. son's um, not not um, uh, uh, so prestigious uh, public school in in Chicago, which is it's an excellent school. He's gotten a great education, but um, in in that school, um, I made a a presentation to to the students there about the Defender, about my book. It, again, it's it's just a nonfiction book that that has done well there. And, and I brought slides, um, pictures um, um, from the early part of the 20th century of the founder of the Defender, again, a guy named Robert Abbott, a migrant from the, the African-American migrant from the South who became one of the first African-American millionaires by building the Defender up as a newspaper. And um, the photos, I, I, I couldn't help but see the impact that those photos had on the African-American students in the class in particular, and they came up to me afterwards, and I could tell from from speaking with them, and I asked them, and they confirmed it, that they, they haven't seen this kind of these kind of photos included in a curriculum previously. But Aton, and this Aton, is at, Aton. A, at a school where there's certainly no end of of, of goodwill to teach this. There's no um, uh, uh, shortage of effort in in a city that that is um, uh, that has resources in a school that has resources. Aton, let me let me just say yeah. it sounds to me like you're making an appeal for comprehensive curriculum, and I don't think anybody's against comprehensive curriculum. Uh, I think I'm saying that, that anecdotes, you know, take us one way. We can find anecdotes of of of, of overreaches in a lot of directions. And we can find anecdotes of of uh, of uh, weakness in 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 you know kind of uh, um, silliness in, in Charles's case. If if you want to really um, uh, uh, drill down, I mean, I I don't know how else to characterize it, right? It's it's this is a situation in which we've got a lot of work to do on the American education system. Well, and, wait, wait, and I wait, think I, that, what that are, the parents. What are you, I, um, uh, um, what are you uh, saying is silly? Charles is absolutely right when he says that parents' voices are being squelched in the debate. That's no, there's no doubt for me about that. Speaking but, as a parent, okay. But what what are you saying is silly? Is is it silly for the school to be interviewing parents, and just just so that people around the country know there's a further allegation that the school is very selective about the parents to whom it puts these questions that they are of one 
religious. Oh, background. I didn't know that. W- yeah. What's the uh, who who are they selecting for scrutiny? Well, ac- according to the report that I read, which is you know I I don't have a and and it, it it's a uh, mm-hmm. an internet uh, uh, news platform that this is being done only with Jewish parents, mm-hmm. but the the question remains at at some point, Eitan. Mm-hmm. Uh, comprehensiveness mm-hmm. is not ideology. Comprehensiveness is the opposite of ideology. It's actually allowing the subject matter to speak to the children, to the student, yeah. to the parents for itself. It, where is the line between ideology and, say, straight, comprehensive historical teaching? It, it's a really difficult question, and, and, and you know, Charles has a lot more um, uh, uh, experience than I do as an educator and knows much better than I do that different levels of young people have different levels of capacity to absorb and process different kinds of information. Let's take an, an, an one that I think has become politicized in, in really a strange way. Columbus, Christopher Columbus, right? He's been adopted as an Italian um, figure, although his ancestry, uh, according to more recent research, is probably Basque um, or somewhere in, 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 the, in the Iberian subcontinent for sure. Um, but he's been adopted as a kind of symbol of Italian-Americanness. And so he's being defended by Italian-Americans um, as, in, in that respect. Um, but if you read Christopher Columbus's actual journals, which I encourage anyone to do, I mean, they're available online and, and, and everywhere else, he doesn't come across as a particularly sympathetic or admirable figure, a moral exemplar, or as someone that you would want your kids to, to emulate. He doesn't even come across as particularly intelligent. He comes across as someone who's seeking gold and willing to do basically whatever it takes to get a hold of that gold. That's not to say that that his accomplishments don't need to be celebrated. It's not to say that his role in history doesn't need to be discussed or acknowledged. It's just that as you um, progress in your historical understanding of things, you have to understand all of those levels. Okay. You have okay, to, on good. the one okay. hand, if okay. you're talking so, to children, right. so, say... Right. This Char- is what he did. Okay. And as you're talking to adults, explain got- he was this kind of person. All right. They so- were able to understand these things, but not necessarily all at once. All right. So, Charles, we've got about a minute or so. Uh, your view of Aton's... Uh, Aton, you ignorant slut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, reason we celebrate, the reason we celebrate Christopher Columbus has yeah. nothing to do with the person of Christopher Columbus. What we're really celebrating is the connection of the new world to the old world and becoming part of a kind of Western civilization. And uh, the reason that places like Berkeley, California, and so forth don't celebrate it, and for several years have only celebrated, if that's the word, Indigenous Peoples Day, is because all they see out of this connection is the oppression uh, of indigenous people. Well, both things are true, right? The, the, there was an, uh, a, an exchange of these two cultures, but it's important to understand there are no more heroes in America. They're all cut down at the knees or higher. And 
Christopher Columbus is just caught in that crossfire. Well, but I'm saying that there's no reason to tell six-year-olds that. <laughs> there's no, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to, to, to say there are no heroes to, to first graders. And Name second. a hero for a first grader. Well, they have sports heroes. They have, um, uh, 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 you know, you can look, I'm saying that there's no reason to present Christopher Columbus's complexities to someone. Oh, I agree with it. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. We should be teaching them string theory instead. All right. All right. I... <laughs> you know, look, there's, 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 there's a way to, what I'm saying is also, we, we were talking before the show of, of, of talk of graduate students, right? Graduate yeah. And that's students. different. Of course, that's different. That's right. But guys, but, I got to go. Today, I got to go. Graduate student, students need to be. Here we go. Hold on one Sorry, second. We... Our phone line is 1-800-723-8289, 1-800-723-8289. we got a couple of good calls waiting, and we'll be back after these words with Charles Lipson. And- Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. This evening you're getting Chris Roebling. I'm sitting in for Bruce this week, and he'll be back soon. Guests are Charles Lipson, former chairman of the Department of <clears throat> excuse me, Political Science at the University of Chicago, Eitan Mikhaili, noted author uh, with a new book out we'll get to in just one moment. This is the part of the program where guests introduce themselves. Charles, give us a few points about yourself. I'm originally uh, from the Mississippi Delta, precisely the place that... Aton has written about that was reached by the Chicago Defender and so many of the African Americans who live in Chicago came north from those cotton fields and so forth. Uh, I didn't take quite that route. I grew up in a small town in Mississippi, went east to college and got a PhD and then came to the University of Chicago to teach, taught uh, international relations and other subjects for many years and in recent years have mostly been writing. I'm an emeritus professor, mostly been writing both academically but especially now uh, a lot of opinion pieces on uh, American politics. Eitan Mikhaili, your new book is called 12 Tribes, Promise and Peril in the New Israel. And there we've got a picture of it right up there looking really good. Uh, Eitan, tell us about yourself and the new title. Well, thank you for, for putting that up there. Um, I um, also um, came uh, uh, to Chicago uh, really through the University of Chicago. I, I was um, a student, at the, an undergraduate student there after growing up in Rochester, New York. And I worked at the, after graduating from the University of Chicago, I um, decided that I wanted to be a novelist, um, found out very quickly um, that um, the jobs for aspiring novelists were, were pretty few and far between, and instead was very lucky to get a job at a journalist, as a journalist at the Chicago Defender, which I didn't even know until I walked through the doors was a historic African-American-owned um, newspaper. Um, it took me many years, took me another 19 years after I, I started working there to write this book, the, uh, the Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. And 
um, uh, th that book did uh, did well. The New York Times uh, called it a towering achievement, not soon to be forgotten. Um, which uh, I don't have any tattoos, but I seriously considered getting that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, just to convince myself that it was real. Um, and that book gave me the ability to do a second book. This one is also um, personal in a way, uh, 12 Tribes, Promise and Peril in the New Israel. It is uh, me, um, not too much of, of my personal background, but it's me talking about um, uh, uh, Israel at the grassroots, really um, interviewing um, many, many Israelis. I interviewed hundreds of Israelis, and I think something like 150 interviews with average Israelis from every sector of the country. Of and Europe. of course, you speak Hebrew, so I, you can I, interview them in their native language. I do have, a, I have family in Israel. Um, uh, my mother lives there. My brother lives there. I spent a lot of time in Israel, and I do speak Hebrew fluently. And I used that to really gain access to every sector of, of, of Israeli society, um, including those that don't get a lot of coverage in, 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 uh, right. in other books or in, 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 in media, really. The Haredi uh, uh, community, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, Haredi is a kind of better word for, for ultra-Orthodox. These are 15% of the Jews in Israel. One out of four of the uh, uh, young people in Israel are Haredi or from the Haredi wow. community. Um, uh, they are very uh, uh, influential on the cultural life, on the religious life, of course, but are also increasingly um, a part of the economic life, a vital part of the economic life there. 20% of the citizens of Israel, the citizens, are Palestinians, are Palestinians who have full rights and opportunities as, as citizens of the state. And they also never get uh, mentioned in media reports or other books. And I'm really proud to be able to, to have written about them. I interviewed um, uh, a, a Palestinian Israeli citizen lawyer who works for the Ministry of Justice in Jerusalem. He had a lot of really interesting things to say. Yeah. And I also interviewed Bedouins who live in um, new cities that are being built in the desert. And I also interviewed Palestinians who live in, in, uh, in the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority or in, 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 uh, 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 in a kind of uh, uh, situation where they daily have to face off with the Israeli military, the, okay. what, what used to be called the, the occupation, um, yep. and which today is, is um, uh, 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 a term that needs to be fully explored, but is definitely an military, ongoing military confrontation. All right. Um, thank you very much for those. Uh, the book, again, is 12 Tribes, Promise and Peril in the New Israel. We've got a caller on the line who's been waiting. Let's hear from Joy in Spokane, Washington. Joy, you're on the line. Hi. I just had a couple comments about the education issue. Thank you. Um, one is um, they talked about, um, I think it was... Um, Charles, who talked about the indoctrination, that oftentimes it's seen that way. And I would say from someone who's from the Democratic, more liberal side, I wouldn't see it in all cases or uh, very often as indoctrination as much as awareness and information. For example, if you're talking about LGBTQ issues, it's not in trying to indoctrinate a lifestyle is that there are kids even in grade school who would be going home to two moms or two dads and so it's more of 
awareness so other kids know that there are there are differences among people. My other um, comment that's is That's an important that, point. I, I don't um, disagree with that, and I think that's an important point. I'm glad you made it, Joy. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that I do get something each day that is, it is uh, ideological, but it's racial injustices um, over history in America for each date. But I think what I have found really interesting and valuable about that is that um, you can better understand, I think, where different groups are coming from. For example, if you look at a number of the lynchings that we've had over the years, oftentimes the um, enforcement bodies are, they are complicit or they look the other way, or they actively, you know, help during these lynchings. And so that's made me more aware of what might be some of the factors when people will say, well, why don't they just listen to the police and do what they say? And it's, you know. Well, me, um, can I respond to that? Can, well, I, can I respond to that? Thank, thank you very I, much. I think that thank that's you, Joy, absolutely. for calling Hold on. You're thank, absolutely thank you, right. Go ahead. That... Uh, that police, uh, in especially in the Jim Crow South, but it was also true in, in many areas in the North and in the West, uh, were complicit with white racism in, in the past. I think that the problem is when that view becomes the dominant view of what our country and what its law enforcement and all the rest is, and I think it's a problem when we teach, as I think many African-American students are taught, fundamentally that they are victims. And I think that it removes a sense of agency from them, a sense that they can create their own lives. And I think that it, um, it depreciates a sense that we made a lot of progress on racial issues and we made a, a lot of progress on more fair policing. And I think that we've now gone too far in the opposite direction. That is, we, um, we have now made it so difficult, I think, for police to enforce reasonable laws that uh, a lot of areas of our cities, and especially the poorest and most vulnerable areas, now live in peril of predators on the street. I think that's terrible. Now, Eitan, any common ground on this? Well, I'm just going to go back to what I said earlier in terms of education, that I think that what is being taught at the grade school level varies greatly from, ex uh, like we were talking about an exclusive private school on one hand, and in my case, what I think of is a, a very good uh, public school, I think that there's a wide distinction in terms of resources and approach and and general um, uh, um, uh, 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 capacity to teach kids at different ages. And so I, I think we just have a long way to go. I, I'm not as concerned with as as Charles is with with um, um, uh, with people kind of being taught in, in, the, in the wrong attitude as I am with people not getting the basics of what they need in, in public schools everywhere. All right. That's really got, the, like, 
Okay, yeah, we've that's got, really where I'm concerned. Very quickly, let's hear from Hal. He's called in from Redding, California. Hal, you're on. What is your bottom line point? The beyond the beltway uh, here, even over in uh, far northern California. Uh, the, uh, the point that there are no heroes is misstated. I have been a registered nurse for 30 years. I have come home from ICU trauma shifts where I had to throw my blood-soaked tennis shoes into the trash because I could not walk into my home with them. I have tutored young nurses that are now going through one of the greatest crises we've ever seen where they didn't have treatment modalities. we got to go. That was Hal from Redding, California, who we thank for calling in, making an important point about heroes among us, the first responders, himself a registered nurse in Northern California for more than 30 years. I'm Chris Roebling. It's Beyond the Beltway Sunday evening. We'll be back after this. Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway, and it's Chris Roebling. Very happy to sit in for my friend Bruce Dumont. Joining me, two other friends, Charles Lipson and Eitan Mikhaili. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you dial in at 1-800-723-8289. Eitan, let's uh, shift. We've been talking about education. Let's talk about violence and policing. Now, this is a very short segment, but we'll have more time after the top of the hour. Can you walk us through your view of what um, Charles was just referring to, which is the requirement for protection among some of the poorest folks in the country who for whom, quote, defunding the police, unquote, removes a last line of protection where they really don't have the resources to fill in any other line of protection for their their families, their possessions, their homes, and sadly, they themselves personally. Let me speak as someone who's, who's, who, who's covered as a journalist policing in Chicago, which is a city that usually stands and, and today also stands in about the middle of the road when it comes to most metrics for homicide, for most major crimes in the city. In other words, uh, as Chicago goes, so goes the nation. Homicide has surged in the country. It's surged in Chicago. Um, And also as someone who just wrote a book about Israel, to put things in in perspective, the homicide rate in the Chicagoland area, which is roughly the same population as Israel-Palestine, the homicide rate in Chicago is many times the rate of people being killed in Israel-Palestine, even when you take into account wars, even when you take into account the latest combat that you had in Israel in May, where Hamas was firing rockets at Israel and Israel was using its military to um, uh, bomb Gaza. Even when you take that into account, the homicide rate in Chicago is many times the rate in Israel-Palestine. Now, look at the rate of homicide in, on the neighborhood level in Chicago, and you find that the neighborhoods in Chicago where homicides, where most of the homicides take place, because when I was covering homicide in the 90s and the rate was 
almost as high, it was spread out throughout the city. I would go to work, this was horrible, but it was true that I would go to work homicide to homicide, right? I would go from the north side to the south side, homicide to homicide. Today, all the homicides are basically taking place in south and west side neighborhoods. Eitan, so that's the context. So, so, so uh, my question for you is, poor people with limited resources rely on the police. Defunding the police tends to mean less protection. So do you think there's any chance of common ground, any chance of bridging political divides, say, on the issue of society helping to protect those with the most limited resources? Well, the, this is my read, that the, the phrase defund the police was not one that originated at a community level. It originated with activists. It was popular for a moment because the same people that are, are, are committing a lot of crimes spend years in jail, of course, and then come back to the same neighborhoods where they usually committed crimes. And so people in those neighborhoods were seeing, frankly, generations of men coming out of prison into situations where there were no resources for them. And they were thinking that defund the police meant use the money for programs to help these young men. I will argue that what happened instead is the approach ended up being, let's just decide that there are certain things out there that are no longer crimes. Okay, Charles And the Lipson. result is, yeah. Charles Lipson. So the result is that you have a lot of people out there with no resources, and no um, uh, disincentive to commit crime. So the question is going to become whether or not ordinary people in those communities begin to push back. <laughs> they will. <laughs> I, I would say the next election, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, this is my personal opinion, but I think that both the mayor and um, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox will be held accountable for, for this situation. I, I don't I, I feel very confident in making that prediction and unless things that? change radically in the next 12 to 14 months. Well, I, I they'll think have to looking. they'll have to reach into a large bucket of competence because they certainly don't have any. My Well, I guess my I, question is, do you think that that's a trend beyond the limits of. You know, oh, yeah, it's a national trend. I mean, look, um, uh, the defund. Uh, initiative sometimes called reimagining the police whatever that is uh was defeated in minneapolis the mayor of um of oakland which is one of the centers for this kind of defunding has reversed her position wants to increase funding there's a recall movement uh for chesa boudin chicago's gift to san francisco who uh, these are people? By the way, it's not uh, the police are constrained, and and uh, make no mistake, we want honest policing, and we want police are given a lot of responsibility, and when they use force excessively or wrongly, uh, as happened in the George Floyd case, for example, those people need to be held accountable, and if they use uh, force in a racist manner. They need to be held accountable. But we need uh, extensive and fair uh, policing. And uh, I think that the can, effort... Can I make a point, though, Charles? Yeah, go ahead. 
we need something else. We need competent policing. The direction in the last 20 or 30 years since I, and I've covered this closely, as I said, the direction the last 20 or 30 years has been to technological, uh, to use technological solutions for policing. Not accidentally, these contracts with programs that, that right. um, do sound recordings of gunshots or that right. um, uh, do all sorts of electronic surveillance, these are contracts that are very attractive and that give the appearance of saving money at the beginning. But really what what's happened is that police departments all over the United States have funded these technological are, solutions and, okay. and, and defunded and detectives. And that's it, Eitan. Uh, we're going to be back after these words. Chris Roebling for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway, and I'm Chris Roebling sitting in for friend Bruce Dumont. He'll be back soon. Guests this evening, Eitan Mikhaili, author and retired Professor Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago. Great to have both of you on and great to have all of you listening. Our number is 800-723-8289, 800-723-8289. Love to hear from you on some of these issues. Let's pick up on violence. I guess... Um, I understand, Aton, you too have said that the uh, redesigning or the reimagining or the defunding of police um, is not gaining support at the community level. And Charles, I think what you're saying is we've already seen the political winds start to shift on that. Is that going to continue in 2022? Do we think there will be some kind of common ground on approaching violence in our society in 2022. Charles, you go first very quickly. I, I think that um, Democrats will continue to reverse their positions or to make clear that they never agreed with the defunding because it's a political loser. Will we find common ground? No because Republicans consider it a wedge issue and they want to actually exploit it. I think the missing element of this, nobody can talk about it because it's a kind of third rail of American politics, is that you can't uh, enforce order in a community externally. A lot of the order in any community has to come from inside the community, from a sense uh, that it is a community. That I mean, when, when I grew up, when uh, a lot of people who are listening grew up, if you misbehaved and you were in a different uh, parent's home or something, they would not only reprimand you, but they would tell your parents. There was a kind of sense that the community did a lot to police itself. If there's a social breakdown or if parents are afraid of uh, saying something about uh, somebody because that person's uh, family might be hostile or, uh, or armed or anything else, then, uh, then you're going to have a real problem. And that's not something that external policing uh, can really bring into order. Ethan made a, Aton made a, a, a very important point earlier. A lot of the violence is within very specific communities. And I think it's a kind of a, an open secret that a lot of what uh, concerns other communities is it might spill over into otherwise peaceful communities. And 
what they really want police to do is be a thin blue wall between these violent communities and their own. Aton, are Democrats going? Oh, I, I don't think. Go ahead. I, I don't think there's a question. Uh, there's no question that that in terms of common ground, which which was what you were asking about. Yes. There is a lot of common ground in what people want from the police. They want the police to respond when they call 911. They want the police to show up. They want the police to prosecute, to, to put together cases with prosecutors. People don't always distinguish, but there's a difference between the role of the police and the role of the prosecutor. They want the police to work with prosecutors to put the bad guys in prison. That's, that's universal. Where we have the breakdown in a lot of communities today is that there's no trust anymore on the one hand between the police department and the community. And on the other hand, the economics have changed. Where you used to have drug dealers that were being protected by guys on the street, the nature of the sales of drugs has changed today. The drug dealers are still out there, but they're doing things anonymously through um, burner phones and um, internet connections. And these days, a lot of people don't even see the person that they're buying Ill illegal substances from. And so there's not really the, the same need for kind of street level enforcement or for gang territories, or frankly, the amount of money that's available within gangs has also kind of disappeared. So what's generating the violence, Aton? Desperation and personal uh, disputes overall these days it's you looked at me funny you flirted with my girlfriend you live on the next block therefore you're an enemy just by living on the next block these are these are really situations in which um, uh, uh, a level of intervention is called for that we are just not seeing right now I, I the interrupters that you guys might have heard about these are courageous people. I don't know if you've ever spent time with them. These are amazing, courageous people, but they have nothing to offer. They go up to young men who are beefing with young men on the next block. They tell them to try to calm down and not to kill each other, but they have no job to offer. They have no education to offer. They have no social services. They have no housing. They have no health care. They're just trying to use the power of persuasion. And often they're successful, but how can they really... How can we really expect results when, when we're not we're not doing anything as a society to kind of intervene? So so I guess I guess, Aton, we've had now two or three generations since the Great Society. And when you run through a litany of what community, what, say, police don't have to offer, is it not the case that a social service structure was built by the American taxpayer with the sense that those sorts of services many of which have been indexed very lately by Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, and other mayors around the country are indexing the services that are available. Um, isn't, it, doesn't this implicate another aspect of sort of what one might call the liberal view of this question, and, and that, that being the following? Uh, shouldn't government, between the service providers and the order maintainers, okay, between the the bureaucrats or the outreach people for the services on the one hand and the, the, the cops and the senior leadership of the police on the other, shouldn't government for the total cost of the social service structure that we've built in this country, shouldn't it have 
actually made that connection already between the guys on the beat and, say, the social workers who are being funded by the other side of the government. Shouldn't government have already kind of figured this out? I mean, of course, but we never really wanted to do anything besides provide second rate services to, to poor people. And, you know, and, and that's, I'm not blaming one party or the other for that. You, if you go back 30 years, right, we had a situation where Chicago had more than 100,000 more public housing units in the city. Now, everybody knows, everybody that's old enough knows that those buildings were, were in terrible shape. These high rises that used to dominate the view on, on the expressway and whatnot, you could see from, from just driving past that they were in disrepair and that they were um, they would have soot stains and you could if you got any closer you could see the the drug dealers standing out front. This was a decidedly second rate kind of public housing. But the solution from both sides, both parties, was deemed to be well, it's not working, so let's tear it down. Well, guess what happened? The poor people that lived in those buildings didn't disappear, they didn't disintegrate, and they didn't magically become wealthier. They moved into the next neighborhood, South and West, bringing with them the same needs and the same kind of desperation. Now it's go. their kids and their grandkids right. that are that are in the situation that we were just talking about. That's Aton McHiley. He's joined by Charles Lipson. It is Beyond the Beltway. I'm Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont back after this. Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont on the program Beyond the Beltway. We're joined by Eitan Mikhaili and Charles Lipson. Eitan, you just, I, I think you made a couple of very important points, and I want to hear from Charles on these. We're now in this portion of the conversation talking about violence and sort of the, the well-being of our cities. Um, one of them that you made was that there was a sort of a shift towards technology and a lot of decisions got made in the 90s and the 2000s about buying technology and maybe augmenting police abilities but that has led to other deficits i think you're that that is your position such a training you had started by saying we need competent policing implying that we don't have the right training the other point that you made is that um the the, the police still, despite all of our work in welfare, all of the things that we've done over the last several decades since the Great Society, we have not yet been able to connect up the police and the pathologies that they're facing on the street corner, so to speak, with the service provisions of the welfare state such as it exists. You know, we had a big conference with Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, extolling all of the services that the city has that she feels are not getting to the um, accused. And she actually met with judges on this issue. She's now convening meetings around the city. Uh, and, and this is one of her topics. Charles Lipson, what uh, has Aton outlined possible common ground on the issue of urban violence here? Are, are these issues that everybody should be concerned about? I think that 
um, the issue of urban violence has become one of the hot button issues now and really does go across income, racial, and other lines. But there are deep cleavages, as Eitan has pointed out. There's a lot of mistrust of police in many communities, and uh, police have earned that mistrust. Uh, but I think that um, the, the points I want to make, uh, I want to go back to a point Eitan made about high-rise public housing. I always thought um, that uh, that the biggest mistake of high-rise public housing was that we built it in 150 cities all at once. If we had built it in 10 random cities and watched how it failed, we would never have built it in the other 140 cities. But that's how we do all of our programs. There's no uh, testing. There's no sense of remedying the failures. Um, and I think that, that, um, that one of the positive signs about the, um, the recent movement by this, by the Oakland mayor and by the citizens of, uh, uh, Minneapolis and so forth is that quickly they've decided that they had moved in the wrong direction with this defunding. There's a big problem, I would say, also with prosecutors. All these prosecutors uh, in, in Chicago, where Kim Fox is a prosecutor, but this is true in uh, L.A., where Gascon is a prosecutor, and Philadelphia, where Kramer is a, uh, Krasner is a prosecutor, and so forth. They're just allowing whole wide swaths of crimes that have been uh, committed, where the police have arrested somebody, they're just waving them away as not requiring any prosecution. We have, we have a we have a and United States. It seems to me we have a United that, States. That's just horrible. We have a United States attorney in Boston. I think that's the Eastern District of Massachusetts, uh, who um, has herself written that uh, long lists of traditional crimes should not be prosecuted. And when Preston. Her confirmationary, she did not say that she would prosecute them. I think the expectation is she will not prosecute them. So we have a nullification, not jury nullification, but we have prosecutor nullification of uh, not just common law crimes, but these are statutory crimes that were passed by legislators who theoretically were representing uh, populations. Uh, Eitan, is that a good, is that a uh, system of prosecution that should be generalized? I I don't know what this I don't know this particular story of this particular prosecutor so I, I won't well, comment. Well, let, let's just use I, let's just I, use the topic it, of been, prosecutors saying. Let, I'm again, not I know the prosecute. local one. Let's just use the example of. I know the local situation best here. Saying I won't, you know, we're not going to charge people for shoplifting under a thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, the voters of California actually approve that. I mean, and remember, all these prosecutors were elected. It's not as if the voters don't have some responsibility in this matter. They voted for Kim Fox. They voted for Krasner. They voted for Gascon. Yeah, these these you know, I don't I don't necessarily think that that voters voted for what they got. I do think that voters, as I said, were looking at a situation that over the years hasn't really 
produced better results, right? They're looking at a tougher on crime approach that again has sent a lot of um, uh, ex-offenders out of the prison system and back into the communities where people live. And the question is what is for them in these communities to get them on a different path, to get them in a different direction? We still haven't solved that, that issue. The prosecutors were, were, were people who presented themselves, the ones that you mentioned that I know of, Chesa Boudin, uh, Larry Kramer, and Kim Fox are the ones that I've, I've paid closest attention to. All of them presented themselves as people who were going to set up programs to help people coming out of prison or to help people who were prosecuted in a way to intervene so that um, uh, the, 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 the community wouldn't be victimized. I think instead what has happened is they just changed the definition of what they were going to, to prosecute and not prosecute. And the result has been um, uh, 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 people being upset with, with, uh, with increases in, in, in crime that, that they think shouldn't have happened. Well, so so do we wait to see the results of upcoming elections to learn the path uh, that that the country is going to take with respect to crime, violent crime in major urban centers? Or are, are there some are there inklings out there of common ground? Do any exist? I don't I don't see any inklings of common ground because the, now you're talking about somebody's political career and they're going to defend their political career. That said, um, look at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, right? That has historically been the one office in Cook County in the last half century that Republicans are occasionally competitive for. Why? Because of exactly this kind of situation where you have a prosecutor who is seen as feckless by the, by the Cook County electorate, right, a broader than city of Chicago electorate. So that if I was a moderate-ish kind of Republican who thought that he could make an appeal as a prosecutor, I sure would be looking at that race right now because it, it would be very, very tempting. That's well, real... the other the other reason that uh, voters sometimes elect a Republican for that is that they would like a, uh, somebody who might occasionally prosecute the corrupt officials <laughs> yes, uh, that's in right. the city or the uh, the county uh, because they know that a that a Democrat who's part of the machine is never going to do it. Well, that's right. So so either that's not exactly the situation we're in right now. We don't have public officials running rampant at the moment, but we do have, have a dissatisfaction that I, I have no doubt will be capitalized, if not by a Republican, then uh, by, by a Democrat looking to run in the primary. And it's led to people voting with their feet. They're moving out of these states. They're moving out of cities and states uh, that are dangerous with high taxes, it's not like it's not like when you pay these high taxes, you're getting good policing, uh, roads that don't have potholes, all the rest. You're not getting any of that. We've got a well, that's, uh, we've got that's a call tough in the city. That's a different. That's a mixed. But I'll I'll speak as a city resident here. We our taxes are are relatively high. There are definitely suburbs that you could move to where taxes would be lower. We, in, in the case of the school system, I'm satisfied with the school system. I know a lot of parents who are satisfied, but that doesn't, Aton, that doesn't Aton, translate to everybody over, everywhere. Aton, We're always on. talking about percentages in, I, in the city, and, and it's always, and frankly, politicians play percentages. Middle class is constantly played against right, um, 
against the poor in 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 Chicago. Aton, That's a very Aton, tough fight I, that, that filters into both education and violence in very significant ways. I don't. I, I we, we're going to have to wrap here in a moment. So this has got to be a very quick point. I, I understand that you are satisfied with the school. You you mentioned earlier that your son attends. You find it to be a, a well-run school and that he's getting a good education. And, and nobody's happier to hear that than I am. On the other hand, there are many thousands, I would say tens of thousands, of Chicago kids who are reaching the end of their K-12 experience and they are not functioning at grade level in math, in science, or in English. And I wonder why you would say something like, I am satisfied with the structure or with the tax bill for the Chicago public schools, when even though they can help kids like your son in certain specific situations, on average, we have an overwhelming majority of kids at at the 12th grade who are dismal with respect to any normal uh, indicia of accomplishment, of attainment. Well, that's exactly what I was saying, that, that that's how the, the, the classes are played against each other. In no, the I'm, not, I'm not you talking have, about the class. Hold um, on, hold on. Uh, I'm not talking about the classes played against each other. I'm talking about a failure of the Chicago public school system to execute its primary right. responsibility. My name's Chris Roebling. I'm sitting in for Bruce Dumont. It's Beyond the Beltway. Back after this. Sunday evening means Beyond the Beltway, and this is Chris Roebling bringing it to you this week for my friend Bruce Dumont, who is off but will be back soon. Of course, Beyond the Beltway is available all over the place. It's got its own website. It's got its own YouTube page, and it's on a variety of streaming services. So it's not just Sunday night. You can really access the program anytime you want from anywhere on the globe where you can get Wi-Fi or cellular. So uh, we've had this conversation mainly about education, mainly about violence with Charles Lipson and Eitan Mikaili. It's our last half hour, and I want to turn to international affairs, public policy, foreign policy, maybe a little military, um, where we are in the world and, and where the United States needs to be. Eitan, you just wrote the book about Israel and uh, the 12 tribes and uh, the promise and, and peril. There's a perfect picture of your book again. Um, it, it tell us, tell, tell the listeners a couple of things about the situation in the Middle East that, of which they might not be currently aware. Sure. Um, first, I'll, I'll say that I think we're used to thinking of Israel as kind of a aid recipient and a beneficiary of the generosity of the United States. And while that is true in one way, it is not true in others, which is to say that the United States no longer provides Israel with any financial aid for its economy because Israel doesn't need it. 
Israel is, as a result of high tech and um, other industries, has become a first world nation and really a regional economic powerhouse in the last few years. It's also um, something that I think is really interesting and needs to be really thought through carefully that the arms industry in Israel and the United States are today completely enmeshed such that the military assistance that the United States provides to Israel is um, legally obligated to be provided by American companies which means that Israeli companies can no longer really benefit from that American aid. Israeli companies understanding that that was the new terms, or those were the new terms of the relationship with the United States, began years ago moving their operations to the United States such that Elbit Systems, Israel's number two arms manufacturer, is now based in Fort Worth. So that is something that we really have to think about as we consider that Elbit Systems is also a major provider of arms and arms-related technology to countries around the world, including um, the UAE, I believe, including Brazil, including Australia, including places all over the world. This is part of the globalization of, of, of the military, of, of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. And it's part of a very different relationship that I think the United States has with the Middle East generally and with Israel specifically today. And Charles Lipson, do you think uh, in light of these points or others, are, are we embarked upon a era of greater stability with respect to Israel and its immediate neighbors? And how might that be compared or contrasted with the era that we're entering into of Israel uh, perhaps acting on its own with respect to Iran and Iran's apparently insatiable appetite to develop nuclear weapons. The United States faces three big global uh, problems in the security realm. China is the biggest. Russia comes after that, and Iran probably third. Um, what the United States uh, began doing, and this seems to be a bipartisan agreement, is uh, withdrawing from these failed wars and a lot of uh, boots-on-the-ground commitment uh, militarily. When they did that in the Middle East, having uh, already destroyed um, uh, the regime in uh, Iraq that was uh, offsetting uh, Iran and having been unable to build another regime uh, in its place, it left Iran kind of rampant in the region. And with the United States having withdrawn effectively, what you see is all of the anti-Iranian um, Arab countries, uh, led, of course, by Saudi Arabia, trying to figure out how they can partner with Israel to counter Iran without undermining their domestic legitimacy, having spent years attacking uh, the Zionist entity as an illegitimate government. So that's where it all stands now. I... I uh, um... Eitan, as you were interviewing the 150 people you mentioned for, for the new book, mm. 
what's their view of Iran and what is their view of how Iran, which is not not going to be stopped by any piece of paper with the United States or with anybody else from developing its own nuclear weaponry. Um, what what is their view of what Israel should do when it gets to the final point? Well, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote. The book is full of, of, of individual opinions and, and um, uh, the relationship with Iran is certainly something that a lot of people mentioned and discussed. And so there's a wide variety of opinions expressed there. And the point of the book really for me is that people listen to Israeli voices, um, Jews and, and, and Arabs as well, and, and make up their own minds. But I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one um, individual named An- Amnon Ben Shoshan, who is a native of Morocco, who a uh, Jewish native of Morocco. There were a lot of Jews, of course, um, all over the Middle East and North Africa, um, who have, who uh, after the founding of the state of Israel, relocated there. And Amnon was born in Morocco and became um, a member of a kibbutz named Ma'agan which was um, really founded as a frontline community on the Syrian border, on the Sea of Galilee. And when I say frontline, I mean it was the frontline. And my parents came there right after the 1948-49 War of Independence and um, were part of the, 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 the community there that was really designed as a bulwark against Syrian invasion. In the years since then, the border has moved because Israel conquered the Golan Heights, which overlook the Sea of Galilee. And so when I talked to Amnon about Iran and Syria and the whole situation there, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I think we're making progress. The war used to be here. Now it's on the other side of the mountain. So I think that it's, it's um, what you can see from, from the kibbutz, you can actually see where the border used to be and you can see the border, you can see the mountain where Syrian soldiers used to shoot down on the community and shoot down into the, the, the Jewish areas there. And as, as the Golan Heights were conquered, um, it's become safer in, in that kibbutz yes, but, and safer in the region. And so but how does that the, relate to uh, nuclear weapons? The issue of Iran really is an existential threat, and Israelis recognize that. It, it, that's right, but it's also a local problem is what, I, what I'm saying, is that it's something that they see as, as a constant threat, as something that's ever-present. And so from the Israeli point of view, I think that they're much more confident in dealing with Iran today even than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Well, let, let me, um, it's let true me, that Iran is more advanced technologically, but so is Israel. Well, let, let me ask you this question. Um, it seems to me that, and, and maybe you two are going to tell me, oh, Roebling, you're all wet. This is a, a bad idea. Does the United, on my search for common ground tonight, does the United States face the following sort of possibility? We can choose our friends. Our friends can be the EU, so that's kind of France, Germany, the UK to some extent, et cetera, and the so-called process, which included, of course, Russia and China, with the Iranians, right? Okay, so that's one. But our friends in the region, and I have had the privilege of going there many times, probably about 45 times in the last eight years, um, it seems to me that our friends in the region are pretty univocal in their concern about Iran. And it's not just the Israelis who are concerned about Iran, but the Bahrainis, 
the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Omanis, even now the Omanis are concerned about Iran, Kuwaitis, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so does the United States face a choice of friends? And is are we looking at a, a situation in which our friends in the region, in the Gulf, and, and Israel might be moving ahead without us, whereas the other folks cannot move ahead without us, the so-called, you know, the, the so-called, you know, uh, the, the, the process people with the EU, the Russia, The Europeans have no power. The Europeans have no power, and all they want to do is continue trading. They want contracts. Including Iran. They want Total uh, to make the money. Arab countries are weak. It's only Israel that really has the power to deal with Iran and the willingness to do so, although the United States has moved a lot of resources into the area quietly, I'm told. I mean... Mil- militarily, could, if you're asking, does Israel today have the capacity to go into Iran and destroy its nuclear um, uh, projects? Um, I would say probably not. Israel today, according to its own assessments that, that I've read that have been published, which means leaked um, to the Israeli media, suggests that if they are able to do damage to the nuclear program, that they wouldn't be able to take it apart entirely. And, and part of the reason for that is that it's, a, it's an intellectual program. It's one that once it's been accomplished um, uh, in terms of the people who have the, the technical know-how to, to do it, once they've been able to do it, you can't really go back. All right, so the I question gotta... for Israel is, is, can they live with a nuclear-armed Iran in the region? I've and... got to let it hang right there. Uh, it's Chris Roebling for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway, back after these words. Beyond the Beltway, I'm Chris Roebling sitting in for Bruce Dumont, Charles Lipson, Eitan Mikhaili. Join me. We're in the last little segment of the show. I think, uh, Eitan, you were making a point about Israel's choice is how to, how to live with a nuclear-armed Iran. Um, is, is, very quickly, is that right? Are we, are, did I get that correct? And then I want to hear from you and, and Charles some closing thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't, I don't see what the alternative is. The, the, a war between Israel and Iran is unwinnable for each of them. Even a war between the United States and Iran would make the war with Iraq look like a cakewalk. So I, I, don't, I don't see what the alternative is right now toward, um, uh, except for the kind of Iran deal that, 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 that seemed to forestall Iranian nuclear development, at least for a moment. Israel would have to back away from its stated policy, which is that it will not accept uh, a nuclearized Iran. And uh, I'm just not sure. They would have, as Eitan implies, a very hard decision to make. I think that the most immediate issue facing the United States is what to do about Ukraine. Uh, The Russians have built up uh, large forces on the border of Ukraine. and uh, they are presumably waiting for the ground to freeze hard so that they can move uh, tanks and other things off-road through that area. 
people seem to think that they might invade all of Ukraine. I think it's more likely that they wouldn't try to go for Kiev, but rather would invade the area between the Russian land border and Crimea, which they've already taken, which is now reached from Russia only by a bridge. So that, And that's an area with a lot of native Russian speakers and people who are affiliated with Russia. But if they do that, the United States has promised to cut off all Russian banking with the West. Uh, I think it would be a very dangerous situation. And what scares me the most is that I don't know that uh, we have established credible deterrence. You don't want to punish as much as you want to deter. And uh, I just don't think, I mean, Trump had many, many flaws, but one of his strengths was that people believed he would use force, even if he didn't want to commit American ground trips. And I think he was a more credible in standing up against Putin than Biden is. But we will see. Biden has has given very powerful threats uh, privately to Putin about the economic damage that the United States uh, could wreck on, on Russia. And what it would do, in effect, is turn Russia into a gas station for China. There's just no other place that the Russians can go other than a tighter alliance with the dictatorial regime uh, of the Communist Party of China. Is it the case that the um, the pipeline that <clears throat> excuse me Russia has been building to the West is itself a entry point for adventurism? That because the pipeline that goes through the Baltic uh, and, and will not be interrupted by an invasion of the Ukraine, which could interrupt the existing pipelines, that Russia sees that and the sort of agreement of Germany to allow that to be concluded, and now the agreement of the Biden administration to allow it to be concluded and operationalized, um, is that pipeline, in fact, a stepping stone to invasion? No. It, what it is, is uh, it's a checkbook for Putin. And the most important thing, that uh, Germany could do would be to, to state in a very public way with the new government that's in Germany, which is a left-wing government, uh, but a green government, would say, we, uh, if there's any invasion of Ukrainian territory, uh, we will not buy any gas and we will cut off Nord Stream 2. Uh, that would be a very powerful statement, but uh, so far, uh, the Europeans uh, have behaved like Europeans. Eitan? You know, uh, I, I'm going to defer to Charles. I think that was that was some brilliant analysis there. Um, I think keep going. You, keep keep talking, Ethan. Keep talking. <laughs> I, I think that if you look at the way that that um, things played out um, uh, next door to Israel in Syria, you can see that Russia's Russia's motives and Russia's um, uh, way of operating has a way of of, of making everybody suspicious. Uh, Russia was was Syria's closest ally, and yet, if you look at the way that things have developed there, Syria has taken every possible step to try to create some distance between them 
and Russia, even though Russia is, is essentially bolstering the Syrian regime with Russian soldiers, Russian planes flown by Russian pilots. Um, the Syrians are very wary of the Russians. The same way with, with, uh, uh, with Russia and Iran could be seen as close allies, but in Syria, they've been um, rivals as much as allies. And Russia, from Israel's point of view, has been seen as an, as a reliable interlocutor, whereas, of course, Iran is their, is their um, uh, uh, sworn enemy. So it's a very complicated situation. And yeah. I don't think that that um, uh, 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 wrap it up. Uh, that the Russians are all I think We've the Russians got, okay. seem to play like one hand at a time. Okay. I'm not sure that they have a long-term... But I will say this about about him. Wait a minute. I will yeah. say Guys. this about him. I think that Putin has been the most effective foreign policy uh, player of the past decade. Well, with the... And with is the he playing a long game or a short the, game? Hold that's, on. that's what I'm asking. Short, All right, Elon, we're going to leave that question in... Aton, sorry. Aton, we're going to leave that question hanging in the air. As I take a moment at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 to thank all of you, the listeners, um, it's been my privilege to be associated with the show for a long time, uh, more years than I care to remember. And that's because of Bruce Dumont, someone on whom you all have come to rely. He'll be back very soon. It's always a privilege for me to sit in for Bruce, especially when fine people like Eitan Mikhaili and Charles Lipson come on the program to chat about these very important issues. It's beyond the Beltway, and it's always on the web, ready for you. We thank you for listening. Until next week, good night.